School is back. Well, sort of. Today, Jess and Michael chat with Karen McIntyre, who's so much more than what a librarian title suggests. Find out what she's doing at Westmead Elementary with composting, food gleaning, and hear about how she was duped into riding the plastic dragon by the plastics industry. Hi Zero Wasters, I'm Jess Johnson and he's Michael Britt and uh, we are here with Karen McIntyre, the librarian from Westmead Elementary School in Nashville. She is here to tell us about Westmead Sustainability Program. Hi Karen, thank you for joining us. Great to be here. So a librarian, that's that's a... that's not usually what you would uh, we, you would consider the person that's dealing with the food and the uh, compost and uh, food waste issues. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's always something I get. What in the world does that have to do with the library? But in truth, it has a great deal to do with the library because it has to do with us all. Um, when I was in college, my young professor who had just gotten his PhD indoctrinated me. Uh, and so all my life I've been conscious of these issues, but until just recently, there hasn't been a lot of, of interest, and oftentimes there's been a lot of derision around some of the things that those of us who are zero wasters do. Uh, but as a librarian, I'm always involved with the children, asking questions and learning and developing good critical skills so that they know what a good source is, and about I guess around 10 years ago, we started a school garden, and I had no idea we were headed for sustainability from there. But it was really a development that was uh, generated symbiotically, I suppose, between the children's questionings and uh, recognition of how endangered our environment had become. And a lot of the things, for instance, our program in composting and redirecting our food was an actual suggestion by the children. Well, why don't we do that? And indeed, why don't we? So uh, it really was an outgrowth of that kind of questioning process that happens in a library. That's, that's funny because um, Maris, who is our other host uh, for Zero Waste Trash Talk, she and I met at a uh, recycling, at the tour for the recycling facility. And, and it's kind of geared towards, it's kind of set up for kids to understand what's happening and, and, and how the city recycles and, and, you know, answer some adult questions too. But one of the best questions the whole day was from a kid who raised his hand and said, when we're talking about landfills and burying our <laughs> trash and how that doesn't work. And the kid raised his hand and said, whoever thought that was a good idea? <laughs> I know they're geniuses. They really are, and uh, I'm I'm firmly believing that they're going to save the world if we give them half a chance. <laughs> That's funny. When uh, when I was researching into this and reaching out to Karen and everything, I kept thinking of your story, Michael, <laughs> and how Which you one? met the Karen, kid? The, the other kid. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, they are stellar. The kids are so smart. Uh, we were studying bats, of course, around Halloween, and this was the third grade, and they were working on creating uh, our wildlife habitat. We had to justify it, and they had to do mapping and all kinds of things. And in the course of that, of course, white nose syndrome was a big issue in Tennessee. And um, and the, there was the statistic that one of the kids saw that bats eat something like three million pounds of insects a night, and that if the bats were gone, um, you know, we'd have to increase our production of of insecticides. 
And so, so this third grader looks at me and goes, oh, great. We, we kill off the bats, and then we put all this poison on the crops, and then we eat the crops, right? Oh. <laughs> I said, I, I didn't tell you that. When you go home and you talk to your parents, I, I did not indoctrinate you. You came to that conclusion on your own. <laughs> But it, it's true. It, it, yeah. First of all, I have a bat house behind my house. I've never <laughs> been able to attract the bats yet. I think we're too far away from a water source. But probably uh, the, between bats and possums, the all the insects that they eat, uh, we have a natural system here that if it's in the proper balance, it works. Right. It's kind of like the composting everything. When things are in proper balance, it works. Right. Uh, Jess and I just watched uh, the biggest mm. little farm documentary. Or actually, is it? A, it's more of a movie it's kind a of movie. slash documentary documentary but yeah more of a movie that was a beautiful movie yeah it is it, it looks like a lot of hard work but the 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 one thing that was really well one of the things really interesting is how to get that balance back how hard they had to work to get that balance to achieve that well one of the things that we do on our campus is we fledge bluebirds every spring what the kids have learned about invasive species and you know the bluebirds were almost on the endangered list here in Tennessee and people intervened and have brought them back by helping them produce young and so in that course of that we learned that uh, one bluebird clutch one one fledging has to have 4,000 caterpillars which is, you know, bird baby food, because right. bird babies can't eat seeds. They have to have baby food just like babies. And so, you know, everything relates to how kids think of things. And once they understood that, then they got the idea, well, why are we, why are we killing these things the way we do? You know, like mm -hmm. when a teacher sees a spider in a classroom, the first reaction is eek, and then they come in and bomb the whole building, and we can't go in for 48 hours. Well, that kills everything, you know. And why do we do that? You know, so they, they come up with these questions. When they know facts like that, it changes how they're thinking about their world, and, and they understand it, and they want it changed. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. How, what is the history of, you know, Westmead's sustainability program? Like, I, I think, you, you know, you've mentioned it, it's been going on for 10 years. I know that not a lot of people even know about that, though, you know? No, we've been very quiet. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I, you know, librarians are quiet people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm learning to be more vocal and more visible. Um, what happened was the PE teacher came to me one day and she'd read an article. This was right after Obama was elected and Michelle was talking about health for children and eating properly. And the article was about gardening and, and how it was healthy for kids, particularly in areas where there are food deserts, in which Nashville there are many food deserts. And so she said, could we do this? And of course, as a librarian, I'm always looking for any way to cooperate with the teacher. So I said, do baby bears sit in chairs? If you're not familiar with that saying, you know, in Goldilocks, baby bears do sit in chairs. And so we uh, wrote a grant and we started a small garden, just two boxes. And that was the very beginning. And the intent was to help kids learn to like to eat food that was healthy and that was, and teach them how to grow it and develop lifelong habits of being outdoors and gardening. And, and so that was our intent. That was all we were going to do. And it grew from that. That's a little pun. Sorry, I couldn't yeah. do this. <laughs> it grew from that because um, as we began, well, children, for one thing, I was stunned, did not know that food came from the earth. 
Yeah. Um, we we planted strawberries, which they like, of course, first, and they um, they were around the box and and they had picked these beautiful ripe red strawberries and they were eating them and it was a sunny day and you know how it is when that fruit is warm and it bursts in your mouth and it's sweet and and one of the little girls looked up at me and she said this came from the ground yuck <laughs> and i said well honey that's where it comes from she said no it comes in a it comes in from the supermarket and i said no that came from the ground too and so she wasn't going to eat it and all the other kids were just devouring the strawberries and they were so good and so finally she bit into the strawberry and she looked at me and she said well this is good <laughs> you know but i mean it took it took a real convincing that it was something she could eat and that was good so then the kids were learning about things and pretty soon we started to have butterflies and so one day i went out in the garden and i photographed there were a lot of butterflies photographed all of them i'd been weeding in the garden and uh, came in and identified them on the internet and found the, the what the egg looked like in the chrysalis and the, you know the whole thing so they could see the whole process on all the butterflies that were out there and identify them and it turned out that that's when I learned that butterflies require they can take nectar from any any flower so they are generalists but when they lay their eggs they have to lay their eggs on just a certain plant and some of them only have one or two plants they can lay eggs on and so guess what i had been weeding i had been weeding oh. plantain and plantain is the most important plant for the buckeye butterfly so yeah. i had been destroying the habitat that i was trying to create you know so I learned as much as the children, and each time we learned a new fact, it contributed to how we viewed things. So we went from having this sort of manicured garden that had lots of little flowers in it to getting the idea that I needed to start looking at what host does this plant provide? What, what does it host? And so then we started planting wild things that look somewhat more like weeds, and it's been a gradual transition over time. And we, we won... I got a notice from the um, NRDC and the World Wildlife Fund that they were going to do this food audit. And of course, I'm always interested in anything that has lots of math implications, it has science implications, you know, so, oh, perfect, we'll do that. And uh, so we did it, the first audit we did was in 2017, and the, the food, of course, I was the only person auditing, so it wasn't very scientific. Uh, but the thing that the kids noticed was on the stage at the head of the cafeteria all week long, they put the food that they didn't touch, that they didn't open, that they didn't bite into. And it was all up there on the stage. And that would have gone to the landfill too. And at the end of the week, the fourth graders came to me and said, why can't we just give that to the homeless people? And I thought, I, I like everybody else believed that you couldn't because you might make them sick. So I did a little research as a librarian and found out, no, that's not true at all. So I contacted the head of food services in Metro, and he gave his blessing. And so in 2017, the next year, we started redirecting our food. And in two and a half years, we've redirected 10,000 pounds of food to the downtown mission. So and much. that's all because of children. They came up with that idea. I didn't think of it. Um, and then two years later... In 2019, they did this program, the same program that I'd done in 2017, but they were trying to figure out in, in the United States what, how many 
pounds of food were being wasted. So they chose eight cities. Nashville was one, and the Urban Green Lab sponsored a real food audit where we had lots of people involved and it was meticulously documented. And so then from that, there was just a little bit of money left over. And I asked, because we'd been doing the redirection piece, I said, do you suppose we could finish out the year by composting? Because by then the kids were used to dividing their food and, and trays and all. And so Kroger said, yeah, go ahead. And so that year, we finished out the year composting. And then the next year, I was able to raise the money to pay for the composting. And all of the environmental groups got involved because we found that we needed somebody in the cafeteria to help. So every single day, an adult would be at the head of that line helping the kids to compost their food. And I'm not kidding you, those adults actually would be upset if school was closed for the day that they were supposed to come because they so enjoyed the children. And one of them has a mother who has slight Alzheimer's and she would bring her mother on Fridays. And it was just the most beautiful thing. The mother wore a little sign that said free hugs. And then when the kids finished composting, Nancy would give them a hug. And some of those kids would go through the line three or four times just to get hugs. <laughs> but Aww. it's been a tremendous experience because it's made me realize that there all of these people are out there and they're all just waiting for the opportunity to make sustainability happen yeah I think a lot of times people just don't know they don't know to think about it they don't know how to do it it does like the opportunities don't come to them I mean that was the same as all of us you know we how we learned was just you know through accident or or, or a friend showing us whatever and that's how we got to where we are today well, I think that's the way we all learn, really. Yeah. It's by encountering something that's real. And when we encounter something that's real and that we're curious about, we hold those things and we memorize them and we know them. And that, that's pretty much what happened. We thought initially that we'd be able to compost right there on school grounds for our school garden, right? But when you have 120 to 160 pounds of food waste a day, <laughs> you realize pretty quickly that a, a compost bin in a garden would not handle that. So we needed a lot of help getting all that started. And so many people contributed to making that happen. Yeah, I saw now, am, am I right? In, I, I thought that I saw that you were sending some of your compost away through uh, Compost Nashville. Yes, that's and then exactly right. St. And, uh, sorry, the Society of St. Andrew, they also help you with that as well? Yeah, when we first started this and I was collecting the food every day in the cafeteria, um, we learned that the, the cafeteria manager, I should say, was very concerned that the food would not last until the end of the day health and be healthy. Mm -hmm. So Home Depot donated a refrigerator. So that was in the back of the library. And of course, kids, if they were hungry, could come and get food. And um, then at the end of the day, there was still a lot of food left. And so three times a week, for the first year, I would drive down to the mission after school on my way home and take the food. And uh, so when we got involved with uh, the uh, Urban Green Lab program, Society of St. Andrew was at one of those meetings and, and Jeannie Hunter, who's in charge of them said, well, my goodness, you don't need to do that. We have people who will come and pick it up. So they pick up the, the food that we redirect. And then um, the food that's composted every day is rolled out in a compost bin. And once a week, beetle, who's the person mm -hmm, at mm -hmm. uh, Compost Nashville, picks it up and takes it out to Ashland City, which is great because we can compost 
you know, virtually anything. All the paper goes in the compost, all the bones, all the the skin from the chicken and whatever. All of that can be composted, which if we were doing it uh, at site, we couldn't compost those things. Right, so, that's true. Yeah, so we love Compost Nashville. As a matter of fact, they're one of our sponsors. Mm -hmm. there'll, there'll be a commercial yeah. inserted here for them at some point. <laughs> and then we just interviewed uh, Jeannie from, uh, you know, Society oh, of St. Andrews. Yes, yes. Yeah, yep. she's, she's been uh, a, a good person to know in town. Um, but that it brings up something that we've encountered a bunch. So, like you said, a lot of us learn from just experimenting and doing or what friends tell you and, you know, by example of other people, and it kind of grows organically. And that's all great. But what we've seen happen at, like, say, where, where people work, office buildings or where even places they volunteer, like animal shelters and things, it's always one person that says, I'm going to take it after school or after work. I'm going to take the recycling. I'm going to I'm going to take responsibility for it and do it. And then the rest of the office just kind of goes, oh, that's great. And then when that person leaves, the whole structure falls apart. Yeah, that's so true. And you notice by the color of my hair, I'm getting close <laughs> to that time when I should retire. Um, but I think that that is a key issue. And so we have to institutionalize these things. So once I realized that, you know, I wasn't going to last forever, um, I thought, how can, how can this happen? How can we make this possibly go on after I'm dead and gone? So, um, fortunately, and this is why I say this is a serendipitous moment because, um, I discovered that Austin, Texas had done this successfully and they're practically a mirror image of our community. I mean, in terms of tech and music and size and everything is pretty much the same. And, um, so I contacted them and I talked to, uh, Darian Clary and I talked to the person who originated that program and he gave me lots of ideas. And so, uh, in addition to doing what I do as a librarian after hours and on weekends, I would work on trying to uh, pull people together and see how we were going to proceed. And so we actually have a group of folks who put together a proposal now that's going to go to Metro schools very shortly. And I've been sending it out to people who are important in the movement and getting their signatures. So I, I want to overwhelm Metro schools with all the support that is in the community already. But the proposal is very basic and it it's stating that First of all, we're going to create um, a committee between Metro Schools and the city and the environmental community to come together and make a plan for how do we become sustainable. If, you know, you wouldn't think of throwing your trash um, on the floor and just walking away. Those are cultural changes that have to happen so that it isn't one person's responsibility. So this is the beginning of that, that sea change. Um, and it's made possible because uh, we've had, ever since Carl Dean, we've had a, a commitment in, to try and make Nashville, I think they called it the greenest city in the southeast. So that, that beginning was back there. And then when Mayor Cooper took office in January, I don't know if you saw his speech that he gave when he instituted the Sustainability Council, but I just was blown away because he, he talked about the impact of climate change in Nashville, the need to uh, restore the canopy, the tree canopy, and why that's so important. And then he instituted this group that he tasked with finding a way to help make Nashville sustainable. 
And that was coupled with, in November, the passage of the zero waste uh, proposal that we're going to be zero waste by 2050. So all of these things were out there already, and we just have to pull them together so that we can make this part of the culture. You know, uh, there's no, that's the only way it happens, because you're right, if some, if it's only one person who's doing it, people may go ahead and cooperate because they like the old lady librarian, but it's got to be a cultural change. And so that's real, the real issue is how do we make that happen? Is this plan um, just specific for Westmead, or are you trying oh, no. to get other so metro <laughs> metro whole thing? Right, we're we're hoping uh, the first part there. It, it doesn't right now because, you know, as soon as we had hatched this plan, we had the tornadoes and then we had the virus, <laughs> and so yeah. we knew it wasn't going to be something that we could ask money for. One of the, one of the main pieces that we had in place earlier was to have a sustainability manager paid for for the district and have that as an actual position. But we, we aren't even trying to do that at this point. Um, I'm thinking that somehow within our own district, we can sort of shuffle job to job descriptions around and the people who are smarter than me will figure that out. But um, we are going to propose the first thing is that when we are back and kids are eating food again, that we compost the waste so it doesn't go to the landfill. By the way, in just seven months, we that compost weighed 4,500 pounds. Oh my gosh. And that's from so one school. That's one school. And we're not that big a school. We're only right. 430 kids. So um, that they're going to, we want to make composting a piece of that. But the, the first step we learned was redirecting the food. So that doesn't cost anything. And Society of St. Andrew and others will pick it up. Um, all it means is you do have to have a couple of volunteers at the school who will make sure yeah. that, you know, the kids know at my school that after lunch there are certain we compost captains come down and bring the food to the to the library and so they'd have to make some arrangement like that but that doesn't cost anything and think of the amount of food that would be saved uh for the whole city for the hungry people well i actually have a figure here that i got off of uh, westmead's website and just in two years um, just Westmead managed to divert 10,000 pounds right. of fruit and other sealed foods. So that's just one school in right. two years. And there's a lot more. Yeah. So then what we've asked within this uh, proposal is that we continue the composting at Westmead. And I thought, oh man, this is going to be a really heavy lift because I had to earn the money to do that last year. But uh, I thought, how am I going to earn money this year given everything that's happened? And so I called Sharon Smith at Public Works and I was really just seeking her uh, blessing for the proposal. And at the end of our conversation, she said, well, what can I do to help you? And I said, well, uh, you know, this is the cardinal rule. You never do this. You should always have an ask in mind. The only ask I had in mind was, could you bless the program? And she said, I, that's all I was going to ask. She said, well, but what can I really do to help you? And I said, well, you know, we don't have any money to pay for composting next year. And she said, well, what if the city would pay half? And I thought, I nearly fell out of my chair. <laughs> I said, that would be so wonderful. We could use that as a challenge to MNPS to say, you know, if the city's going to pay half, you guys can pay half. And the idea being then as we've learned about how we do this effectively at Westmead, then we can roll that out in our, our little cluster and get 
enough schools that are doing this together, we can actually demonstrate by weight how much they will save if the district will move to this model instead of the trash everything model. And that's that's more difficult because I learned, of course, I had to learn a lot about trash. Um, <laughs> I learned that there's no way to measure just West Mead because part of our program has been not only the composting and the redirecting of food, but we've been much more intentional about recycling and repurposing and trying to say, what is this going to wind up as? You know, so like last year, I took 850 pounds of perfectly wonderful stuff that would have gone to the landfill to Turnip Green Reuse, that the teachers, we actually had a garage sale in the library. They all brought their junk down, and I sorted it and displayed it, and then they all came in and traded junk. You know, I didn't charge anything. They just, and they, oh, well, I can't believe somebody's getting rid of these scissors. Why are, you know, and they took all of that back to their classrooms, and then I still had 850 pounds to take to Turnip Green. So, I mean, I know that we're saving a lot from the landfill, but there's no way to measure that unless we have several schools doing it. So the intent is to get a number of schools involved. And the reason it's uh, several people have said, yeah, but that's that's Westmead. And, you know, Westmead has a reputation of being a rich neighborhood. Most of our kids don't come from the neighborhood. But um, it's because that neighborhood, Westmead and Hillwood, both have a conservation orientation already. So they've been really supportive. I mean, the Westmead Conservancy provided books for second graders um, to study, and they provided a botanist to come and help me identify plants in the perimeter. And uh, so there's there's already that commitment in that neighborhood, which made it a good place to start. But we um, we're involving a lot of other people throughout the city, and we consider this to be a citywide initiative. Yeah. Okay, so people listening to this, uh, our listeners and our people from Zero Waste uh, Nashville Facebook group, we I've had personal one-on-one -on -one conversations with parents who have kids in schools, and they want they they're asking us to do something. We're like, well, us is just the three of us. It's like you. It's like, can you go talk to every school, Karen? Um, and and I I wanted to be involved, but I wasn't quite sure how to do that. And and so how can if if our listeners want their schools to be more uh, sustainable and to to work with the programs that you're creating, is there a website like like you're talking about the volunteers that come in is there a way is there a clearinghouse yet somewhere we can send people to go sign up and help well i think that no there the answer the simple answer is no there's no clearing site yet um i have a facebook page called mnps waste warriors and my intent with that is to post all the things that are going on in different schools when we started this uh, after the food audit, we had three schools involved. One was Warner Elementary and one was H.G. Hill Middle. And the problem with that was that they just weren't far enough along in the process to be ready, like West Mead, to go ahead and start the composting piece and get going. But um, they, there will be schools, I think. Uh, we're looking at several right now, and, and parents have inquired from several of the schools in our, our area. If people wanted to just send me their information, um, I will find ways to help plug them in. And I think they might need to mention this if they're in PTA or PTO, that this is an important thing that we need to support. So when this goes to city council, for instance, if they would contact their council people and say, wow, this is great. Uh, part of this program too, and we haven't talked about that at all, 
is the concept of outdoor education. And of course, that may be more important as we work through COVID, but uh, the importance of children learning about nature and loving it. We go, we take our entire our entire population to Warner Parks three times a year to do nature study. And I think it was Doug Talmay said, you can't save what you don't love. So we can't expect anyone to commit, because this is not convenient. It's much more convenient just to throw your trash away. You can't expect people to commit to that unless they love where we live, the place where we live. So I think the people, if they wanted to contact me personally, I will keep them in mind. And it, it would be important for them to tell me what school their uh, kids go to. Um, and we'll find a way to involve them. Um, so that would be how we do that, I think. Right now, there will be better ways in the future when the district actually gets up and running with this. I think there'll be more obvious ways. But also it's important to know that the district's already kind of on this path because last year they created an energy department and they hired a consulting firm for five years to help reduce energy because energy, we, we hemorrhage energy at, uh, at our schools because they're old. And uh, so th that structure's already in place and we, we're hoping that they'll, the district will see how to piggyback these things together and to utilize the resources. There's a list in this uh, proposal so that Metro schools can see all the people that are currently already working on these issues in the schools, uh, the trap gardens, um, Nancy Stetton at Park Avenue. Uh, I mean, there's Sisway Herring and his New Earth Group. Uh, I mean, there's there's just so many things that are already happening. We just need to give them a little encouragement and lift them up. Yeah, I actually saw that there are quite a number of schools out there that are doing this and even more, like even down to the shape of the buildings and what the buildings are made of and how they have plants growing in the buildings. And sometimes some of them don't even, you know how like our walls, they cover the, the water pipes and stuff like that. Well, some of these schools don't even do that because they want the, school, uh, the children to understand what is actually happening behind walls so that you can then, and then they incorporate this into their, into their curriculum where they start teaching them how to measure the amount of water and gas and all the other whatever resources are being used that you know that they're using on a daily basis so they can take that forward you know so right. it's there's a lot out there um, well and we're hoping there's one not to it'd be fun to go on a field trip you guys uh, in Bowling Green, there are actually two net zero buildings, school buildings, and one of them returned $37,500 to the district in extra electrical generation for one year uh, because they didn't use all that. They, they, that was excess energy they created that TVA bought back. Hey, Zero Waste Squad. We're going to take a minute and run an ad for a company that we love, Compost Nashville. Composting doesn't have to be complicated, messy, or even time-consuming. Compost Nashville can set you up with a lidded bucket to store all of your food scraps and compostable materials that gets picked up once a week from your doorstep. It's that easy. By signing up, you're not only diverting 30% of trash that would normally go into the landfill, but you're also getting finished compost using your own yard twice a year. Not into gardening? No problem. Compost Nashville lets you donate your finished compost to a local farm or community garden. Last year, your fellow Nashvillians used this service to divert 730 tons from the landfill. 
This 1.5 million pounds of compost removed over 1,400 metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions from the air. That's like taking 3,687 cars off the road. Use the code TRASHTALK for 50% off your first month when you sign up at compostnashville.org. Zero Waste Trash Talk is now sponsored by Twig, Tennessee Women in Green, a nonprofit that empowers, inspires, and connects women who are committed to environmental sustainability. I personally have learned and gained so much from being a member, and here at Trash Talk, we are honored for their support. Visit TennesseeWomenInGreen.com or follow them on social media to register for your first meeting, and maybe I'll see you there. This is this is one of the things everyone says. Oh, it's so expensive to do all these things, but it, it's it's not necessarily. And a lot of times, it'll end up saving money in the long run. It's right. just that everyone's priorities seem to be very short term, and right. that's that's kind of a problem, you know, environmentally. Period. Yeah. Um, it's great that you're bringing kids, getting them involved in and in, in the local nature scene and the environment because that's that's one of the things I say all the time is is the environment is. For me, it's East Nashville. That's my environment. Yeah. You know, that's that. I don't. I don't think. I think people talk about it like this. Oh, save the polar bears. The environment is like no, no. Environment is where you live. It's your front yard where your neighbors or whoever put too many uh, pesticides down to have a green grass and they're killing all the butterflies and the bugs. All of this. We're all working. We're all living in the same environment. That's right. Um, one quick question I was curious about is something I heard from uh, you know, not having kids in period or not having kids in school. Um, do I heard that the, the trays that everybody uses in cafeterias are compostable trays. Is that correct? They are. For the whole city? For the whole city. We uh, when way back at the beginning mm-hmm. when we were starting the garden movement, uh, the community gardens and the school gardens, there was money and there was a lot of organization around that. Of course, those, those grants all went away. But we were able at that time with the help of uh, the folks who started the Bell Garden, uh, I don't. Are you familiar with the Bell Garden? Mm-hmm. It's the Bellevue Edible Learning Lab. Charlie Tigard was on the city council back then, and he had gone out and seen um, the Berkeley Edible Schoolyard, and met uh, and gone to Chez Panisse, and and he had some wonderful folks who they set it up as a 501. Oh wait, I always get that wrong. 503, 501. C3. Yes. And uh, so they actually have a board and they have a huge, beautiful garden there at Bellevue Middle. And so with the help of all these people and and several of the universities, uh, and we had a brand new director at MNPS of Food Services and uh, Spencer Taylor, he agreed, even though it was a little more expensive to get the compostable trays. Now, we assumed that it wouldn't take a decade to get to the place where we're actually composting those trays. But that's yes, the, they that's are the compostable. Weird, <laughs> that's the weird part to me, to have compostable trays, to pay extra for compostable trays and then not do the follow-through for the composting. But thank goodness we have them, Michael, because now when we do our compost, Actually, the kids empty their trays and to keep it from being so voluminous, because uh, compost nation bill charges by the volume. We have the kids stack those trays, and then at the end of the lunch period, we put all those stacked trays, neatly stacked trays, back in the the compost bins. But if we didn't have that, that would all be going to the landfill. But right now, we are po we are poised and ready to do well, this. 
But what happened to washable hard plastic ones? Is that dating oh, me for, no. for way back? <laughs> I, the, what the problem was, and we looked at that when, when we were trying to get the compostable trays, uh, because the schools had gone to this other model so long ago, any remaining equipment that was in those cafeterias was degraded to the point of not being usable. And then also they would have to hire... And I think that that's the way to go, personally. But they would have to hire more people to do that. And if you look at some of the models in other countries, oh, you know, in in uh, Japan and in France, the kids participate in preparing the meals and serving the meals. And that, I think, is the ultimate goal. But, you know, that's on down the road a piece. So for the time being, this is much better than the throwaway trays. But you and I, Michael, well, you're you're probably younger than me because I'm older than dirt. But um, I remember those plastic trays and, and getting them and the thrill of taking them back to our classroom in California. And we had sun, a sunlight coming into the classroom. We had skylights and the side of the classroom opened up so that it opened onto a patio. These were all, you know, that was way back in the 60s. And... Uh, and those are now those ideas are now coming back around. <laughs> it's nice. funny how they're like revolutionary ideas, but they were so standard before and they worked fine, <laughs> but something changed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I mean, I guess it goes back to what Michael said, like, I mean, yes, it's an investment into into getting the equipments and the employees in, you know, in, in into a kitchen like that or in or in any area of a school, but over time it would pay off because the money that you're spending on um you know on these uh, uh trays and whatnot like eventually that would just equal equal itself out well and the food that we had you know we loved it when the cafeteria made uh, grilled cheese they would make homemade bread and everybody yep. ate the grilled cheese because it was so good and they also they co made cookies and and they would actually earn money from the things that they made in that cafeteria and it was purchased locally and of course yeah. we know that that's really important if we're going to reduce our carbon footprint those are some of the things we desperately need to do and it's healthier it's much healthier and we're seeing with the, the pandemic shutting down food distribution and food packaging where the, the local food chains are broken and we need to beef that up because yeah. obviously it's a problem and we can't rely on food packagers to package everything up and ship it out because if something goes wrong on their end, then everything rots in the field and gets thrown away oh, while people are hungry. Yeah. This is why I wish that we could, uh, I, I have a dream that one day we will have a lot of urban farming in really untraditional areas you know we will be able to actually create our own foods locally that like anybody i mean you could grow food in a school or in a library or wherever and then somebody else could profit from that you know well actually that's, from that. that's happening right now and in, in some of these schools that have you know we just have five little bed beds that are four by eight so we couldn't grow very much food but some of those places have large beds and those schools are growing food for their community right now. They've already switched to doing that. Oh, uh, so, you know, we can do this and we need to do it. And, you know, when I was in Europe, I, I, was, I was just thrilled to be able to go to Europe. And I remember riding on the train and going from Germany to Switzerland, you know, all around. And every little town, you'd look in those backyards and they all had gardens and they all grew food. 
And I thought, man, this is what we should be doing. Why aren't we doing this? <laughs> and and oh. the trains work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, when we were yeah. in, we were in, uh, where were we at? Not Vienna. But we were somewhere in Austria, I think. Uh, and my wife, we were looking around. It's a, you know, the cobblestone streets and mm-hmm. the historic buildings. Yet the, the modern trains run right through the middle of that. And my wife turned to me and said, why is it such a problem in America? If they can fit it into this historic architecture, why can't we do it here? Yeah. And and it's down to will and political will and right. and which is which is what we want people listening to say, okay, the political will, the action item here is to support what you're doing at Westmead and what your organization combined with Urban Green Lab and and Compost Nashville, this this idea of having an umbrella organization to help the school systems with this program. Well, and I don't want to leave out, there's a key piece that's unusual for, and it's grown out of our experience. It is that there is this wisdom network in our community. Um, And I, you know, somebody said, well, what does that mean? And I said, well, it's a bunch of old people that I always go to to ask questions. (laughs) And they are people like Hans Willi Honiger, Dr. Honiger from uh, Vanderbilt. Do you know about him? I don't. He spends all his time eradicating invasive species and getting people to plant natives. He single-handedly just about, well, I mean, he had a lot of help, but it was his impetus, saved the Bell Cave. Um, you know, and they're, they're all over. Uh, I constantly talk to Gail Eichenberger and, um, and Colleen Gantz-Whitaver. Whitver. She has a huge garden that's just all wildlife gardening and she shares her plants. And these people are so eager to share with kids. Uh, Wanda Shotwell's a weaver and she comes to my school and she shows the kids from the beginning all the way through how it happens. Those people have the wisdom and knowledge to make all of this possible. And we need to honor that wisdom. I know that we aren't very good about honoring our elders in our culture, but they have been a large part of helping me understand and learn and begin to do this, you know, so. This this is one of the things, uh, I think there's the environmental movement and people jump in and get active and 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 it's really we, we're actually running the numbers recently for the listeners to this podcast and it's women 18 to 34 that's 84 percent of our listeners are women 18 to was it was it 24 or 34 i no, don't remember i think it was the oh yeah was it 24? anyway no, I think younger it excuse younger yeah. Excuse younger and with women. And one of the things as we go to these various, you know, to Urban Green Lab events and uh, the Tennessee Environmental Council uh, meetings and and uh, just meet people around town that are involved in stuff, you, you do find that there are there's a group of hardcore people that have been fighting these causes for, for 30, 40, 50, 60 years, keeping coal ash out of the water systems, keeping right. a lid on nuclear development. There's, there's people that have been doing this, and for the, the disconnect between the youth movement and, and the people that have been doing it, it seems to be, seems to me to need to be bridged a little bit. Right. So. But, I mean, I'm so encouraged by those youth. Um, the, the Sunrise Movement, um, if they knew these people, they would love them. And so we need to find a way to connect them together because they need each other. This is what I love. Oh, yeah. This is this is actually what I love about the um, connection also between, you know, doing it in a school environment, because we've got 
what I've noticed is we have people who've been working on educating children and we've had people who've been working on educating um, adults and there wasn't really a way to, to bridge that. But now, I mean, you've got the adults who have their children in these schools. You've got our listeners who might want schools to do this because they know that as the, you know, the newer generations learn this, they can continue it. So like, this is a beautiful way to, to bridge that. Yeah, I think Sharon Smith, one of the reasons she was so receptive was we'd had a conversation. I'd heard her speak back in November, and we'd had a conversation about how difficult it is to get people to understand recycling. They get angry at the 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 city because they can no longer recycle certain things. And I said to her, you know what happens when children learn about these things and participate in school is that they go right home and they challenge their parents about why are you throwing that away why don't we do you know and and so they're like little vectors and if you think about the number of children in our district and the number of teachers it's a huge number and that just spreads the message so we can educate the children the children can take it home and educate their families Absolutely. And the transparency. How, why? Like the, the, the story with the caterpillars and the butterflies <laughs> and the bats. If you know the backstory and why you're doing it, you're, it's, you take it in more and it's, right. it becomes part of you. And I think some of the problems with the recycling is in, from city programs is it's not particularly transparent and they change the rules and people don't know why yeah. and they get mad about it. I, I personally think, I don't want to go off we're on a tangent, but we should stop recycling plastic because right. it's broken and then focus on composting metals and paper and just do what works right now. And it would right. be a lot less confusing for people and they would Actually. understand it. That's not necessarily a tangent because I saw on your website, uh, on the Westmead website, that there was a, I, I guess it was last year, where you guys had a, a we drive. We a contest, a, yes. Yeah, a plastic bag drive, and you were teaching oh, right. people about plastic bag and, and uh, you know, and, and film plastic, which I thought was great. I mean, I looked at the brochure that somebody had made where there was all the facts and stuff. I mean, obviously we would much prefer people to just not have to use plastic ever, uh, you know, because obviously the recycling system yeah. is far more broken than anybody realizes. Like even putting that film plastic in a recycling center is just mostly no, it's, useless. It's, it, yes, exactly. And one of the things, of course, I didn't know that. I've been faithfully taking my bags to those, you know, to Kroger and putting it in the little bin. And yeah. and uh, I faithfully recycle things that I, that I can't recycle in Kirby. We have Kirby at my house. I take it to the centers, the convenience centers and recycle. And what I learned was, well, first of all, when, when we started getting, because we collected, and if you think about how lightweight plastic is, we collected like 1,500 pounds of plastic bags. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> so, you know, I needed to find a place where I could take it, and they would take it and recycle it, and nobody wanted it. And so then I called the people who started this program, and I said, you know, well, wh who are you people? Because <laughs> oh. we just, you know, it came from the district. So they'd convinced the district to, to put this out to the principals. And what I learned was that they were sponsored by the Plastic Film and Bag Makers Association of America. I have heard that that has uh -huh. happened so much. So many of these bag drives were just basically from those people. Yeah, it was strictly propaganda. And the point is, it really isn't recyclable because, um, you can number one, you can only recycle it twice. Mm -hmm. And number two, most of the time, those bins get 
contaminated and then they just throw them out. So even though people are conscientiously taking the bags to the, to the place, the, half the time they don't even go to the recycling. Uh, just as I learned, because uh, I finally asked the question when I was at the, the reclamation center a while back, I noticed that somebody had thrown in the glass of all things, you know, you'd think, how can you get confused about that? Somebody had thrown a plastic bag full of plastic into the glass bin. And so I said to the, the guy at the booth, I said, well, what do you do when that happens? He says, oh, they just have to throw it away because we don't have the manpower to, to go through it. Yeah. And I thought somebody drove all the way to that recycling center and did not understand the importance of putting it in the right place. And that's an education piece. I keep shouting uh, uh, all the people on my local, um, like the, the hip Bellevue Facebook page that I'm in, because people will, they will send pictures of how somebody dumped like plastic bags or dumped cardboard boxes or whatever on the side of the can, because either it wouldn't fit or they were too lazy. And so then everyone's like, well, you know, they'll just pick it up and put it in there. Da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. And I'm there like, no, that's not the way it works. That cardboard got wet. It's going to be thrown away. They're like, well, you know, the the effort that they put into that is, you know, it's better than nothing. And I'm like, that's no, not the not. case because no. they literally should have just put it in landfill if that's what they were going to do. We, you know? We'd like, rather you not participate than to, than to drive out there and do it improperly. Just don't yeah. participate just, if you refuse yeah, to do it. do it yeah. if and, you don't And know. I see that. I see that with curbside pickup. I, I, you see people stacking stuff all over their trash cans and outside. What do they think? This is 1950s where the guys with the cigars get off and pick up the cans and load it. That's not how it works here. No. It, it's a, a truck has an arm that picks it up. No one gets out of the truck and sorts your garbage at the curbside for collection. It uh -uh. Yeah, it's well, education. There are, cities, there are cities that have done a better job. I know when I lived in Dallas, um, we had to segregate and they had little bins that you put everything in. And if you had put um, something that was recyclable, they actually had p trained you so that you didn't do it anymore. They would not pick up your trash. They would just yeah. leave it. Metro did try doing that at some point this year where they gave you warnings well, by they putting gave you stickers on yeah. it or something. But then there were trash cans that were being left behind and everybody was mad about it. Yeah. And I, I would be there like, well, that's what you get. No, 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 no. Well, now you won't get anywhere like that, dear. <laughs> just, just tends to turn into uh, Cartman from South Park every now and then. She, that's her alter ego, actually. I, I, was, I was talking to Mike at Grow Wild, which is they've been so helpful to me and they grow strictly native plants out in Fairview and I said you know I have so much trouble because the people don't understand that the garden isn't about looking pretty it's about pollinators so like they're tall plants a lot of them you know and they have the bloom way at the top and that bothers people and but it's there because that's nature developed that because pollinators are flying around in the air and they're looking down and they're, they're going to see them come down so I said how do you get people to understand that Mike and he said well he said you don't push it down their throats Karen right <laughs> right <laughs> he said you you're gonna have to you know go easy and you're gonna have to so like this year when I mulched everything because you know the gardening idea here in America is you put a plant and then you put mulch and then you put another plant and put mulch and right. seasonally you change the plants out you know and that's not a garden but so I have mulched carefully around all those plants but of course they're still not quite as pretty as some so I've I I try to balance those two, to walk that, you know, and, and pull people in gradually to where they finally get, oh, oh, that isn't a good idea. Yep. <laughs> it takes a long time. 
I think, and this is what we talk about all the time, that it's, it's lead by example. You show people and they, everybody's on their own journey and their own path. And, and the reality of all of our individual actions aren't going to move the needle at all for the environment. No. But collectively, if, our, if we, through our actions and through leadership, can share an ethics or a, a climate morality, I think that starts to seep into the politics and the business decisions and everything else. And I think that's where the, where the needle will move is if right. enough people, you know, have, I, have that as a base. And we vote with our dollars. Right. You know, when I first went into a Kroger here and said, I want to buy local tomatoes. And they looked at me like I was had three horns. And he carefully explained to me how the, the warehouse worked and they had to be uniform and they had to be this and that. And the, I said, well, you know what? I'm just going to go to the farmer's market for the summer because I like to have local fresh produce. And, and about five years later, because I wasn't the only one doing that, Kroger started having little signs that said local tomatoes, you know, and I try to support those things. So I try very hard because Kroger also has come out with this zero waste plan. And I know that it's to their benefit to do this, but it's also to our benefit. So I want to support the companies that are trying to make better choices. And uh, just as I want to support the children, you know, what you don't, you don't take a kid and, and you don't get anywhere if you're just yelling at them, you know, you got to, right. It, there's actually, a, a, it's um, Zagotsky came up with this, and this is way back from my education background, but it's called the zone of proximal development. And so you want the child to walk on this fine line between it being too hard and getting discouraged and being too easy and not doing enough. And that's the same, same is true for all of this. We have to pull people along and we have to kind of get behind them and push a little bit, but we don't want to push them over the edge to where they get frustrated either. So it's, it's, it's a balancing act. But, yeah. the, but, but asking, you know, when you go in and you ask the people at Kroger that, and tell them what you want. And when you go to a restaurant and say, I don't want to eat out of styrofoam for your to go. <laughs> so that's the conversation we have over and over. And every business out there will tell you, well, no one's asking for it. So yeah. we have to ask for it. And that's right. how to, to enact change. And refuse the straws. You know, I always say, no, I don't want a straw. It's straws. Right. And I, my husband just rolls his eyes because he knows what's coming, right? Well, and also, <laughs> the, also the lids that the straws are yeah. coming in, right. too. You don't yeah. need that. Jess has a lid thing. She thinks uh, no one needs a lid no for anything. There's no need for a lid. Unless you're going upside down, you don't need that. Right. <laughs> and, and I have, you know, constantly used uh, reusable cups. And most mm -hmm. places we're doing that now. But now with the virus, we're back to they yeah. don't want you to do that. So it's that is a discouraging thing and we're producing a tremendous amount more of trash than we did before the virus. So yeah. we've it's, got it's to figure a way around that too, you know? Yeah, we definitely need to, as we move forward, the choices need to, 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 to be uh, more climate and socially just, I think, for all around, right. the, all across the board. Well, um, and you know, we aren't going to have racial justice or any of the justice issues unless we have climate justice. Right. because that's driving a lot of the, the dislocation in our world today. Um, and I'm, I'm also encouraged by the number of faith communities so, that are involved with this. You might want to consider having a Tennessee Interfaith Power and Light on sometime. Yeah, I, I, I met, uh, what's his name, the guy, one of the guys that runs? Dan, uh, Dr. Yeah, Jaranko. Yeah. Yes, I think uh -huh. I have met him. Um, 
Well, when I first started going to that, there were like five congregations. And now when I go, I mean, I'm just, I don't even have to go anymore hardly because there's so many represented there and they're doing such good work. And uh, in fact, two of the churches not far from my school have participated in helping us with, with all of these issues as well. So I think it's the time is right. We just have to keep, keep on keeping on. I have a quote here from this this book that I keep meaning to review and talk about on an episode, but it's called The Future Earth uh, by Eric Holthaus. Holthaus? Uh, I have to say how to pronounce that right. Anyway, it's called The Future Earth. Here's a quote from, uh, it's the most positive book I've read for change, by the way. It's not just doom and gloom. It's about how we go about changing. Uh, but he says, we're at a time where the problems of the world just can't be answered by the prevailing imagery. Uh, we are in a time of breakdown, that this breakdown in our society is happening precisely during a breakdown of our atmosphere and ecosystem is no coincidence. And it feels like the, a lot of people being displaced, not having climate justice, that, and, and I mean, even down to during the pandemic, if you're locked in a little apartment and you're, you don't have a yard and you don't have a playground to take your children to, you're suffering more than people with a yard in their house and that are taken care of. So this whole idea that it's all intertwined and yes. it's all to a boiling point right now, I firmly believe I agree with that in this book. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's also why it's really important that Metro get on board and, and uh, have as many or, or all of their schools, you know, as possible, um, you know, start doing sustainable stuff because even the, you know, the schools that are probably in the, the more lower income areas or, or neighborhoods that wouldn't necessarily you know, culturally wouldn't really care or, or whatever, don't really hear, you know, there's a disconnect with, with this kind of information, well, then the children will still see it. And the parents right. might actually hear from that from their children. Well, and there's uh, Nilla Frierson at, um, oh, I want to say, Brooklyn Community Gardens is right down the street from Haynes Middle, and she does a lot of things with those kids. So there's, it's out there. We're ready to go. We just need yeah. a little encouragement, and and we can make this happen. We can. Yeah. All right, Man, listeners, this let's has make been it happen. Such an exciting conversation. I was so excited for this uh, for today to come. Um, yeah, I guess how do we how do we help you do that? How do our listeners help you? Do you have an email address that we can contact I do. you at? Or? Yeah, and yeah. it's easy because it is my first name, Karen, K A R E N, and a dot, and then my last name, McIntyre, which is spelled just like Reba, M C I N T Y R E, at M N P S dot org. That's Metropolitan Nashville Public Schools dot org. And if they will email me, I'll put them in a spreadsheet. Uh, please uh, let me know what school you're near um, when you email me. And um, also, just you might even send a, a quick note to your uh, city council member or your city um, board member for the board because we'll be presented first. We're going to take it to the administration, and we really expect them to be excited about this. And then to the to the school board, and we expect them to be excited about this too. And then to the city council, where we also want to ask the city council to declare a Nashville Children's Outdoor Bill of Rights. And so that'll be a wonderful statement that'll kind of encapsulate a lot of these ideas and help people start to incorporate them into their everyday thinking. And um, 
and that's going to be our beginning. So we'll need definitely vocal support. You don't have to do anything other than to tell your council member or your board member how important this is to our community and our world. And that would be the beginning. But if you send me your name and uh, where you're close to, what school you would be close to, I will put that in a spreadsheet and I will see that uh, if, if, I, if this works, that's a big if, I guess. If this works, then I will see that you get connected with someone who can help you uh, be involved. And don't forget, I don't know if you've seen the Zero Waste Nashville Facebook page. Oh, yeah. Uh, are you a member? Have you, did you join that one yet? No, I haven't. Okay. I, I've, I've liked it. <laughs> I th it's a membership so that in case you know somebody gets out of hand we can we can ah, kick, kick them out okay that's the only th reason that it's a member site but it is open to be seen by everyone but what the point my point is that when you have something that you need help with post on there oh, we okay. have there, mm -hmm. I think right now it's what 840 members or yeah. something here it's in Nashville. A great so there yeah. are people that are looking for ways to be involved. I'll go there and I do actually, that right away. I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna post uh, probably on there, and you know I'd love to you know for, we're obviously we'll we'll connect this in um, you know in the in the write up that we do of this podcast and stuff. But I I found some studies on <clears throat> excuse me on on why um, you know the, the, this kind of sustainable school is like. Um, beneficial for, for for the children and for the schools and for everyone around and I mean it's not just basic stuff like it's mm -hmm. for the students it's for the schools and it's for the planet too there's right. you know you've got positive impact um, on on the actual children who are in there they participate more they show more there's I mean teachers even actually hang out longer this is based on like a study that I found from um, Stanford, Univer uh, Stanford mm -hmm. University so I mean it shows that teachers are staying longer which you know is obviously great for great for the students so yeah i'm gonna make sure to to post that out there so our you know listeners and members can actually really understand why they really should care because it's not just one reason you know there's, no. there's multiple reasons no it's all as as michael said it's all interconnected yep indeed it is all right awesome. well thank you so much for uh, talking with us today this was uh, amazing thank you for yeah. the opportunity